Welcome to the Wealth Academy podcast. This podcast helps you discover wealth is more than just money. It consists of several empowering components that make up wealth in your personal and business life. Now, here's your host, Paul Lawrence Van. And good day. This is your host, Paul Lawrence Van, host of Wealth Academy podcast. I want to welcome everybody in our community, the listeners and subscribers in the 18 countries in which we have supporters to thank you all for being here today. Today is a very special day, primarily because of our honored guest, and his name is Dr. Askia Davis. And Dr. Davis is a social entrepreneur dedicated to propelling Nigeria's social development enterprises and institutions to global leadership and enhancing a culture of volunteerism and philanthropy across Nigeria. And good day to you, Dr. Davis. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, today's show, and I want listeners to take this into account, is about the current circumstances and situations that not only happen in the United States, but around the world. We know that there's inequality, there's racism, there's social injustice, and there are many things that are going on with the killings of African-American men and women that we want to talk about today because it does fit in with our mantra that wealth is more than just money. It's also about the lifestyles that we live and to be able to live a comfortable life, we need not to have the stresses and pressures of life on us. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So without further ado, what I'm going to do is talk a, a little bit about Dr. Davis's background, which is substantial in nature. And you all will learn even more when I put it in the show notes uh, for this episode. Now, Dr. Davis was born in rural Georgia in 1950, and at the age of five, he picked cotton with no shoes on his feet. His family had strong belief in education, so all of his 12 siblings in a school having learned how to learn to read well at ages three and four, after having been taught by the eldest amongst them. Joined the Great Migration. They joined the Great Migration to New York City at the age of 15. And age 16, he lived in his own apartment in New York City after his oldest brother was drafted during the Vietnam War. He graduated valedictorian from a predominantly white Brooklyn high school after attending a segregated, underfunded school in Georgia. And at the age of 18, he was a leader of the Black student movement at Brooklyn College and through protests achieved open admissions, which ultimately led to the enrollment and graduations of tens of thousands of Black and Puerto Rican students. He was arrested during the college protests and faced 228 years in prison until Congresswoman the great Shirley Chisholm got the charges dropped against them and his 18 classmates. He became a counselor following graduation and later went on to become the senior assistant to three consecutive New York City schools chancellors responsible for their primary educational initiatives. Then after the superintendent of schools in Harlem and for 100,000 students in Brooklyn, the section of New York City, a doctor of education graduate at Columbia University at the age of 32, which is a wonderful accomplishment. And while writing his dissertation of the year for his department, he built a consultancy focusing on leadership and innovation in businesses and international corporations. He co-authored with his then 18-year-old son a dual memoir focusing on contrasting the coming of age in the black power and black is beautiful generation with his own coming of age in the hip hop generation of age. And without further ado, 
Dr. Davis. Wow, that's quite an accomplishment, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, yes. And let's, let's move a little bit further into this interview. Um, Dr. Davis, uh, please share what your journey has been like from your youth to now, even though I shared a little bit of it briefly, I know there's much more than that. And uh, we know you were born in Georgia and you were raised both partly in Georgia and in New York City. But tell me, what was your journey like from, from your own person? Well, I was born in Georgia, went to a segregated school and uh, every day we had to cross a little wooden bridge over a sewer to get to school. But we had some very dynamite black teachers. We had a community that really believed in education. And so we went to school every day. I would tell you, Brother Paul, when I was in fourth grade, they used to help me in the office I scored the California Achievement Test for the entire school from first grade through 12th grade each year, starting in fourth grade. Tremendous, tremendous. And so I always had this sense of, I guess, being a teacher, I didn't know that was my destiny, but ultimately it was. Uh, when I was at Brooklyn College at age 18, I ran a center that recruited and prepared young people in high school to enter Brooklyn College, black kids primarily, because yes. at that point, Brooklyn College was not really interested in having black kids in it, although black people paid taxes for this city university. So we began to protest at Brooklyn College and make a long story short, at the age of 18, I was arrested with a Smith & Weston to my forehead. Oh no. Forehead. <laughs> at my apartment in the Bronx where I lived alone, uh, six cops, they took me, they raided other homes across the city and ultimately 19 of us was put into jail. I was at Rikers Island. Uh, one day I was walking and the guys were reading the paper and there was a picture of me on the cover of one of the local newspapers. And so they looked at me and, you know, in, in the language, I can't say it on the uh, podcast, but they say, you are one bad mother. <laughs> and then they say, man, you are, you are facing 228 years in prison. Say, you must be one bad mother. Because you in here. Oh my goodness, I tell you what, that, that is something else. And uh, again, a Smith & Wesson, and so they're going around the city finding the other 18 students. Right. Activists. Right. And it sounds, sounds familiar, doesn't it, today? It sounds familiar, and I tell people on your podcast to get the book, The Black Revolution on Campus yes. by Martha Biondi. The Black Revolution on Campus by Martha Biondi. She's a professor at one of the Midwestern universities. Me and a number of uh, student revolutionaries from all across America about what was going on at that time. 
So I'll spare you the details and stuff to say that I give, I give gratitude to Shirley Chisholm because if not, my little black self would have been <laughs> right? Because I look for a long time. That's a long time. That's a couple of months at least. <laughs> and I would say this, you know, people now, you know, they tell our young people, oh, jail is no big thing. I tell you, when I read that I was facing 228 years in prison, you know what went through my mind? It was not about seeing my girlfriend. It was not about hanging out with my friends. You know what I said to myself? I said, wow, I'd never be free to walk in the sunshine again. Yeah. And that was, that, that's what struck me. You know, but then I would never walk freely in the sun again. That was a seminal moment in life. It's, it's not a joke. So moving on, yeah. when I left Brooklyn College, they sent the emissary, the president of Brooklyn College sent the emissary, uh, a black man, a black professor, to ask me to stay after my graduation to become a counselor at Brooklyn College because they wanted me to tamp down any resistance on the part of the students that we've now brought in to the campus because we succeeded in getting open admissions at Brooklyn College. So now if I'm on their staff, I would be able to tell the students, hey, you know, be cool, be cool, be cool. Exactly, yes. Paul, this was August of 1972. My daughter Ife was going to be born September of 1972. I did not have a job. I looked at that professor and said, no thanks. That is and remarkable. found me a job in the New York City public schools, and I've been blessed <laughs> since then. That is wonderful. You know, because... We have a responsibility. I tell my son, and we were telling him from the time he was conceived and in his mother's womb, greatness comes in living in a manner that makes it possible for other people to succeed and to prosper. You yes. know, that's, that's how my teachers were with us. Sure. You know, they weren't looking to prosper. They were looking to make sure that we had the foundation in Georgia. Exactly. So that I could come up to Georgia from a town of less than 4,000 kids, 4,000 people, and then go to a high school in Brooklyn with almost 5,000 white kids that come out number one. That is remarkable. And I tell you, that that's really something else because again, 228 years is not like 228 days or, or 228 months. 228 years, as you stated, there would be no sunshine. There would be no moonlight because it would be the confinement of those cells, but, but God had a plan for you. And, and we're thankful for Shirley Chisholm. Of course, she ran for the presidency and she was serious business. Uh, I, re I remember her and uh, she left a great legacy as well as your teachers because they wanted you to know what you needed to know, learn what you need to learn so you can pass it on to the next generation and beyond. Yeah, and Brother Paul, I wanna say that Many times, other people are defining, trying to define our reality. They say Correct. that our young people have no role models. That is a lie. Correct. You know, because I would tell you, my mother never went beyond eighth grade, but even today at 70 years old, she's still my role model. And I'm trying to get to the wisdom that she had when she took care of 13 young people in the heart of one of the race, most racist states in the world. So I, when I look at uh, even New York, when I came to New York, I saw all of the black people and the uh, black folks from the Caribbean 
and right. they were they were uh, working in the post office, working in the subway, working on, but they own homes. Yes. You know, yes. And, and so I was saying, look at these people. These people are not high income, but they knew what was important, that you have to build yeah. wealth and you have to transfer wealth on to the Absolutely. next generation. So yes. I went on to, at, at 1974, I told my wife, I was a counselor. I said, look, I'm going to Columbia University to get yes. my doctoral degree. And she says, how are you going to do that? You have $1,000, we have $1,000 <laughs> in the bank, we have two kids, how are you going to Columbia University? $1,000, you're rich in that time. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I told her, Brother Paul? Uh -huh. And I, I believe this in terms of faith. I don't care if you're a Christian or Muslim or whatever, God created the universe based on certain principles. And one principle that operates is the principle of faith, you yes. know, across yeah. these religions. And so I said, I said to her, I'm going because I'm going to take 594 of those $1,000. I'm going to pay for my first six credits at Columbia University because God has put somebody at Columbia University that to can take help care you. of me once I get there. And I, I just said that spontaneously because I believed it. Yes. And I walked in that January. I paid at the Bursar's office. I went upstairs to my departmental office. The, the hallways are empty because nobody expects the teachers to be there. The students are only expected to be there to register. I walked into 308A Main Hall, and Harry Passau was sitting at his desk. He looked at me. Ann Lieberman, Professor Ann Lieberman, a Jewish woman, came out. She looked at me. And she, she wanted to know something about me. Sure. And I had this deep Georgia accent <laughs> at Columbia University. Exactly. And, and, and I told her what, what I was doing there and what I hoped to accomplish. That was January 1974. By March 1974, she had given me a full scholarship to pay for all of my credits all the way through my doctoral degree plus an internship that paid me the salary of a teacher so I could take care of my kids. Family. Oh, that is that's a blessing. And again, because you believed and the fact that you had that $1,000 and I tell people that money is God's money and how we use it is up to us and you used it wisely and you believe. So I, I think that is absolutely wonderful. So let's transition just a little bit, uh, uh, Brother Skia. Now, we talked about this a little bit in the introduction and, and laying the foundation for this particular episode. Now, given the civil unrest that's prevalent in America today, even the fact that people are protesting uh, the, the inequality and the racism, what experiences that give you that expert knowledge and, to, and the uh, experience to share with the listeners about what they can do today? People are protesting here in Washington, D.C. They're getting arrested. They're putting the uh, military on them in Portland in New York and other uh, locations around the country. What can you share to help people here out on these movements, the Black Lives Matters movement and other uh, uh, protests out there against inequality, discrimination, and racism? So Brother Paul, at 17, at the age of 17, as I was in Brooklyn College, I also became the Lieutenant of Education for the Harlem Black Panther Party. Got it. And so what I learned 
And what we did as students at Brooklyn College, I got the students, we organized a breakfast program twice a week before I went to school. My schedule was Mondays and I think Wednesdays. I had to be there. Other people had to be there Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Fridays. And we fed kids who would have gone to school hungry. hungry. We organized rich strikes in Brownsville yes. to yes. deal with that poor housing. So we did a lot of things. And I say to people, you get, don't just protest. We got to build our communities. Yes. We, have to have, we have to build. A, in Washington, D.C., how many black people have been dispossessed of their homes? Homes. Right? Increased taxes. Yes. I had them stolen. You know what I did in January back here in New York because I learned it back then because I read Malcolm X at age 15, by the okay. way. And yes, that Malcolm just blew my mind. It yes. blew my mind because I was a little country boy. I didn't know who Malcolm X was. <laughs> well, he was brilliant. <laughs> it blew my mind. And so what did I do this past January? We got with the attorney general here in New York who happens to be a black woman, which tells you the importance of voting. The yes. first black person and the first black woman to be attorney general sure. of the state of New York. And what was, her, what was her concern? Her concern was that so many homes were being stolen from black people. I hear they were falsifying deeds. You had these, you had these vultures corporate vultures and individual white individuals coming in and they'll look and at brownstones and business. So they, they were investment people. Yeah, they were, they were apartment investors who were coming in, but they were taking the deeds away from the people yeah. to displace people. Exactly. What they were doing, give you an example. Uh, one black woman, she went away. I guess she got sick for three months. And she went to live with her younger, you know, uh, kids. She came back. She's in a brownstone in Brooklyn. They had stolen the deed and had taken and gotten another mortgage on her home. And so, so that's, so that's and, stealing. Yeah. And so what happens is that in one case like this, the court did not even, the court was trying to take away the woman's home when she proved that she never it's signed that mortgage. Exactly. So, so we got together with Tish James, the Attorney General. We went out to East New York, uh, out to East Flatbush here in Brooklyn, and I knocked on one Saturday, I knocked on something like 150 doors and just talking to black homeowners. And they were telling us about the uh, phone calls they get every day from Texas, from Colorado, from California. We want to buy your house. We want this. We're going to give you this money. We're going to give you that money. And so there are so many things that we need to do. We need to protest. We need, yes. to, we need to educate Kate. our seniors yes. and our and about yes. protecting their properties. That is so, and I think that's a role for the church, and the church needs to do more of that here in New York. And I'm quite sure in Washington, D.C. as well. So yes. I learned as a, as a teenager. Well, a lot of it is that gentrification is what's taking place. Because in Washington, D.C., that's what's happened. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Here in Brooklyn, you know, where I live, uh, I, had a, I had a woman next door to me, a black woman, 
Her home was mortgage-free. They stole it from under her because she fell behind in her taxes. Taxes. And she and they put it in the in the Daily News. So the vultures they see that. I talked to her and I said, you know, you need to get with your family to make sure you pay those taxes. Sure, because she has the she has the equity in the home to do that. The home was worth. It was in bad shape, but even in bad shape, it was worth $2.2 million. She had the equity for the taxes. You see? But oh my goodness. Was, she said she went to this lawyer. This lawyer promised her this and promised her that, gave her a little money in her hand. And then apparently she never took her own lawyer, never read the fine print, and her home was taken from her. And the next thing you know, two young white men came in, moved in next door. I see them cutting the lots. I ask them, what are you doing to this woman's home? Oh, we own this home now. We're bringing our family in. I looked it up in the New York Times. They bought her home for $834,000. They came in, they fixed, they fixed the electricity. They fixed the roof. They did painting. And within three months after lying to say they were moving their family in, they after three months, tennis. they sold it for $2.2 million. Goodness gracious. Wow. So, so, so this thing about knowledge, financial sure. knowledge, financial yes. literacy is so important to our people. Absolutely. It is, and you're, you're not going to get it in the schools, Brother Paul. Oh, no, they don't teach it in the schools. Yeah. No. And even when they do, it's not comprehensive enough. I have, I have, I have friends who make $200 plus and still have credit card debt. Wow. That's... that's that's hard to believe. I, so, in other words, they're living, they're living uh, above their means. Well, you know what it is? It's not even so much, you know, that's true, but sometimes it's deeper than that. Like, for instance, the other night I was counseling this young woman. She's like in her mid-40s, very bright, very entrepreneurial, get, trying to start her own business. And so she sent me her 401k statement from her job. Sure. Right? Now, she didn't have a lot of money in a 401k. Say she had $18,000. Sure. Paul, they had that $18,000 invested in like at least 13 different accounts. Mutual funds, this. And I'm looking, I'm saying, this makes no kind of sense. No sense whatsoever. And of course, she, being as bright as she is and as enterprising as she is, she did not, she had not been taught to look at the return on investment. One, one year, five years, 10 years, performance to look at the cost behind these investments as well. You know, the fees. Right, the fees up front, yeah. yeah. I showed her all of this in a Zoom call like we're having today. But so I'm saying, look, we need, we need to protest. We need to be out there. Everybody's not gonna protest. But we right. also need to educate our educate, people, educate our families, educate yes. our neighbors, protect our seniors. Get out there and, and, and vote. Because yes, they got to vote. In New York City, one year on the Mayor Bloomberg, they stopped 600,000, 651,000 uh, stop and frisk stop. Stop, stop and frisk, Black exactly. Black and Latino youth, what were they doing stopping them for? What they would do is they would say, look, do you have uh, marijuana on you, right? So the kid would say, 
uh, he would think. Sure. He said, you know, like, uh, if you show me the marijuana, you know, it's going to be easier right. on you than me going in your pocket. And so the kid pulls out the marijuana, right? The stick, one stick of marijuana, right? Right. Now, what happened, and this was in the New York Times, if that kid had left that stick of marijuana in his pocket and they had searched his pocket and pulled it out, they could have only given him a ticket. Right. But because he pulled it out, they not got him for public display of the marijuana and oh. his misdemeanor. And he didn't, he, he wouldn't have known that. And, and so, he didn't know the law. Right. And so what I was saying is that our churches should be educating these young people. Sure, absolutely. Educate them. So, you know, don't be walking around with a joint. Don't right. be. When I was superintendent in Harlem, I was forced to let a great young man go because he had a, he had a family, but he was caught with one little stick of marijuana. And so, you know, you get a, you get a, 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 a statement from the city. Uh, John Smith was arrested for one joint of marijuana. You must terminate him. So if I didn't terminate him, you know, they were going to terminate him. You see what I'm saying? Exactly. And me too. It would have been worse. Yeah, it would have been worse. And, and, and the interesting thing is, is that nowadays they're actually more marijuana corporations, companies, and one of them is led by one of the former senators. Of course. <laughs> of course. And, and, and you know, and this is what they do. This is what they do is they were, they were just arresting black kids. Meanwhile, the white kids are not only doing marijuana, they're doing ecstasy, ecstasy they're yeah. doing math, they're More doing everything, and including the, not just the white kids, but the, but the big honchos on Wall Street. Right, they're yeah. Doing it, but never stop. So never we need stop. to educate, we need to do financial literacy, we need to protect, help our families protect their investments. We need to educate about passing on wealth, because I've yes. seen- I've Generational seen, wealth. I've seen situations where, where uh, flight families, they die and don't have a will. Well, right. so now they have property and go to probate court. Probate, right. So the white judge looks and he names his nephew the executor of your estate. So he then, had, they now have control he's over collecting his fees. He's collecting fees, what he could charge, whatever. And so all of a sudden, you have an estate that's worth a few hundred thousand dollars, but thirty or forty thousand of it is going to this nephew. You see what I'm saying? Whereas oh, yeah. thirty or forty thousand dollars could have been going to your family, family, which would make a difference and, and keep that generational wealth going, and to include the property, the house, or land, whatever else may be involved. Exactly. So yes. one of the things is to get involved in housing. You know, housing is so critical in our community. You know, sure. to, to vote, to vote for the, now in New York, the attorney general that we have in New York yeah. for the last six years, yes. I'm not arresting anyone for any marijuana. Yeah. He, it's, he it's not, it's, it. Yes, it's not a big deal. And, and, <laughs> and what it does, it overburdens the court for really something that's matter. Hey, and guess what, Brother Paul? One kid got stopped did not have $500 for Bell. No, yeah, Bell. Went to Rikers Island for years because, 
it took in the Bronx, the, the caseload and the courts were so backlogged that it was taking four years to bring the case, the case before the judge. So he's in jail for four years, and guess what happened? In the fourth year, he committed suicide. Yeah, and the I city, read about that. Yeah, the city had to pay. I think the city paid uh, something like ten million dollars. Right, I read about. It. This happened just a couple of years ago, didn't it? Yeah, two years ago. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember reading that. Yes. So it's the same thing that we see with the police violence. Last year, New York City paid two hundred and forty-two million dollars to settle cases, cases. In one year in terms of police misconduct. $242 wow. million. Dollars. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. So, and, and, yes. So, so that money is not going for housing, right? It's, right. It's, not going for it's education. Not going for education. Right. Not going for uh, medical. It's not. Yeah. And so we, we suffer. Yes, absolutely. So thank you for providing that. So let's move on, uh, Brother Askia. And let's talk a little bit about what has been happening of late. Uh, Brother George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others have been killed in New York, of course. We had one of the first cases. Uh, I can't breathe. Yes. And so uh, what, could, what would you like to say to the young people right now in terms of their interaction with police officers and trying to steer clear of that? Because even if they try to steer clear from it, oftentimes they're drawn into it. Right. If you can provide some words of wisdom to them uh, in your experience and what you're saying today. So with my son, we did what most black people do is to tell them to have that talk. Uh, stay away. But also, we have to tell them of their rights. And you yes. have a right to record or have someone record your interaction with a police officer. Yes. So I'm telling people, young people, older people, keep your iPhone charged and ready at all times. And hit the voice recorder immediately. Yeah, and, and, and hit that because, because it, is, it is not a complete equalizer, but it makes the playing field more level. Absolutely. You know, and you can show And that, have evidence. When you can show evidence. So that's one thing. The second thing is in New York now, you know, they're not arresting for marijuana anymore because we got uh, DAs, we voted in DAs who put that stupid stuff out. And believe me, I do not believe our kids should be smoking marijuana. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Same so, here. And I'm blessed that my son never did. So I never had to worry about that angle. That's right. You know, but at the same time, he was a six foot four black man, young man. He was a target. He was so he he was stopped. Oh yeah, the assumption the assumption is always there, even though he's innocent. So he's running home to a multi million dollar condo one day from high school to because I told him always go to the bathroom before you leave school. Leave school. You can't be running in the streets because right. they see you running and they. So he's running, up, he's running up Vanderbilt Avenue, two blocks from our condominium. Uh -huh. Cop stops him. He's 13 years old, but he's sits two. Two. So he looks, oh, he, they assume he's older. Yeah. <laughs> so they stop him, and they found nothing, you know, and, you know, they searched him. But you know what they did? 
they put his name in a police database. Right. Because all and, the stuff. And that's really against his rights. That, that's even, against his rights. Yeah, even if you had nothing. But again, the borough president of Brooklyn now, Adam Adams, Eric Adams, was in the state legislature and he put a law in to force them to eliminate a database that had hundreds of thousands of names of kids that they had stopped who were completely innocent, but yet they wanted to keep a record of them on file. Was he, he, was he that representative, was he a former police officer himself? He was a former police officer. Yeah, I saw him on television a couple of months ago. Very dynamic. I will also tell you that when I, was, when I was a superintendent in the chancellor's office, Giuliani, the fascist that he is, he demanded that the superintendent, that the chancellor provide the yearbooks so he could put the pictures and the names of every kid. That had been in, stopped. No, not been stopped. These were every kid in New York City in every high school. Wow. In case they ever commit any crime in the future, according to him. That's, that's the man, that's how dangerous this man is. Very much so. so. And so we resisted that as uh, superintendents and everything. He got rid of the chancellor when the chancellor refused to do it. Wow, that is unbelievable. But, but you know, that's, um, if someone had did his children like that or his, his relatives' children like that, they would not have liked that. And so I, I, I don't understand why they would even do that. They could probably get a lawsuit on that one too. Yeah, but what happened is that it never happened. The chancellor refused right. to do it. Right. And so he kicked the chancellor out, but the superintendents were not going for that either. So that meant that, you know- You'd have to fire everyone. <laughs> so if, 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 a, if a crime occurred, uh, say maybe uh, 20 blocks from a school, they'll look at the school nearby, They'll go into the yearbook and they'll show the uh, victim or the so-called observer pictures of all the kids in the yearbook. And you know how eyewitness, yes. uh, unreliable eyewitness accounts are? So right. all of a sudden they're telling you, isn't that the one there? Like they did with the Central Park Five. Five, right. right. Isn't, oh. that, isn't he the one? Right. So they're basically steering them. It's called steering. Of course. And yes. so what we, what we say to young people is, number one, carry your ID. Carry your ID. Absolutely. Because in New York, if you didn't carry your ID, my, my son was riding his Cannondale bicycle, expensive bicycle one day. Uh-huh. And he did what a lot of kids do. According to the cops, he didn't stop for the red light. He stopped, but he, he went before the light changed the green. Right. They rolled up on him. And they said, look, uh, where's your ID? He showed his ID. You know what they told him? White cops, if you didn't have your ID, we were going to take that bicycle from you. Wow. That is unbelievable. Because the assumption is that the bike is stolen. Exactly. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That is just crazy. It's like, this, this, and I'm telling you New York, but this is all across America. All, all across America. Can you imagine in Alabama and Mississippi and Arkansas and those and Florida where those fools are going around carrying guns, not just the cops, but the citizens? The citizens, and they're, they're the uh, you know, open carry. open carry. Yeah, open carry, yes. So I say to people, I say to young people, do not put your business in the street. This is an old school black thing, right? 
Do not put your pic. Why are you on Facebook talking about you got this and you got that? Right. right. Don't put that on there. Yeah, I never put anything on there. I just put just positive stuff as best it's I can. Right. <laughs> I, I see these yo. I see these guys who are old enough to know better. They're talking about. Oh man, I got my gun. I got. I said, man. You don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Why do we need to know that? We don't I said, need to know. Don't you know how many black men have been killed? Look at what happened to Breonna Taylor. Yeah. You know, her, she was she was working for the city. She was working for the city. Her boyfriend's yeah. gun was licensed. And exactly. Then, so just you don't be. If he had if he had been bragging on Facebook that he had a gun, guess what? Even though he was innocent and they let him go this time, they would have looked at their Facebook post and said, look at him, he's bragging on Facebook. You see exactly. what I'm saying? Exactly. All these things go against you. You don't want to do that. I said, don't even show your house on the tele on, on the Facebook. Don't show anything personal. And then don't talk about you going on a trip anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, say, I say to young black people, and I told my son the other day, I said, he's 27 now. I said, man, when you have kids, please don't put these, be putting your kids' pictures everywhere uh -huh. you do. Because guess what? You got these pedophiles out here. You got all kinds of criminals. All of a sudden, they go up and they say to a little girl, uh, hi, Alice, uh, your mother told, your mother, uh, uh, Mary told me uh, that she can't get you right now, so you should come with me. You see, so they know everything. They everything. know your mother's name. Right. They know where you live. Uh -huh. No. See, they can't they can't do that to my kids because I drive my kids to school. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Oh yeah. I, I have I have I have relatives, man, and every day the pictures of them little babies. And so you uh -huh. can follow the kid from birth to <laughs> graduation. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all right. So let's uh, let's talk about the elephant in the room now. The elephant in the room right now is the voting. Voting is the biggest thing. In fact, today, we're exactly a month from actual election day if a person is not voting early or mailing it in. So we have exactly a month from today. Let's talk about and share with the listeners the relevancy and the importance of being registered and voting, and not only for the president, but for members of Congress, judges, mayors, governors, uh, sheriffs, whatever it might be, uh, uh, the election board, everything, the importance of that. It is so important. And uh, I already talked about how the district attorneys in New York have changed things. Yes. Uh, you know, you can no longer just, you don't have this kind of mass incarceration that was going on for all these little petty infractions anymore. Uh, I just read an article in California and one, one city just outside of San Francisco, every violation that was uh, written against a citizen was written against a young black person, jaywalking. So you, wow. so you, get, you get a uh, fine for jaywalking, right? That's and, crazy. But, but you're poor. <laughs> And you don't even go home and tell your mother, your father, because you know. So all of a sudden, <laughs> you have a record because you haven't, and then you get to be five, six years uh, later, that warrant is still outstanding because you didn't show up in court. Court, right. You know what I'm saying? So, so the situation need, gets it gets magnified. It gets worse. So we need, we need to vote. Now, there are a few black people who have been on Facebook saying, we can't vote. We don't, it, it's all. It's not all garbage. Look, understand that 
Obama, no matter what you think his faults may have been, there are at least six or seven million black people with health insurance that didn't have it before. That's correct. Even more than that. Yeah. And that is so important. And guess what? If this guy gets reelected, there are going to be six to seven, thousand, seven million black people without insurance. Now, those people who are telling black people not to vote, they're not going to pay their insurance. Uh, absolutely. Right. And, and there's so much uh, voter suppression. I mean, it's, it's act, they're actually speaking it into existence uh, on, on a regular interview. I, I've never seen anything like this in the mailboxes. Oh, you know what, Brother Paul? This white supremacist thing has always been here. Always been here. Out in the open. I listen to the media saying we are not, we are more divided than ever before. And I laugh and say, black people are not. Yeah. We've seen all of this. This it's, is nothing it's new before. It's, it's so called new to them because right. it was under the covers, but they benefited from it and they still benefited, benefit from it. So I look, there are those black folks who are talking about we are, uh, uh, African descendants of enslaved people in America, and we don't we don't we don't feel the same as our Caribbean brothers or our Brazilian brothers or no. our, you know they and were I, all they were all brought on slave ships, all of them. And, 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 and Kamala Harris, her her Jamaican her Jamaican father was Indian too. This, this is these are the lies they they buy into, and I look and I say, look, they don't know right now, brother. Brother Paul, they just found last year in Trinidad a strain of rice that they thought were lost from forever from South Carolina. And how did they find it? There's a group of, uh, uh, of Trinidadians called Medicans. Okay. And these are people who are descendants Sentence. of escaped enslaved people from South Carolina to Trinidad back in the 1800s who took that strain of rice with them. Wow, that is remarkable. Yeah. My wife, who is Puerto Rican, okay, they say, you know, uh -huh. we, don't, we, don't, we don't hook up with the Puerto Ricans. Guess what? My wife's great, great, great grandmother was born in Haiti. The oldest known descendant in her family was taken from Haiti to Puerto Rico around 1803 as the revolution was concluded. He took them to Puerto Rico. He took a hundred enslaved people to Puerto Rico so he could keep his so-called property. Exactly. Yes. Anthony, who thought he was born in, you know, the basketball player, who right. thought he was born and his family is Puerto Rican, Afro-Puerto Rican. Uh, uh, Gates, Professor right. Gates. Yes. His, Up there at, uh, uh, he was, he's at showed, Harvard. Yeah, showed yes. him that his great-great-great-grandmother was taken enslaved from Venezuela, Venezuela. to Puerto Rico yeah. during the Bolivar Revolution. That is remarkable. Yeah, I actually saw that, See, that episode. So, yeah. So our, people, our people, you don't know, they, they moved us all around the Americas. All around, yes. All around. They moved yes. people back from Haiti to New Orleans, New Orleans to Haiti, to Martinique, to Jamaica. Hey, so we are one people. Yes, one people all over the world. In fact, I was uh, in Australia and I met some of the Aborigine people and I was having a conversation with this artist and he, he had uh, some art that he was selling. And uh, he and I were talking, but what he was saying 
it's the exact same thing that we're saying, even though he's in Australia, right? And so I went, to, I was, I was in Australia for two weeks, and I, I talked to him, and he the same discussions that we're having. He and I were having that same discussion about the the um, the racism, about the uh, inequality, about uh, the you know, suppressing the vote. You know, they, they were the original people there and yet all of their land was taken away. Yeah. Everything was taken away from, just like, you know, the natives here, uh, this is their land and everything was taken from them. Exactly. So when people, people say, you know, go back to the country you came from, everybody would be leaving, everybody. Everybody. Everybody would be leaving, <laughs> except the, the original people that were here. Exactly. So, so I, I don't see that. So uh, let's move on. And thank you so much for providing that information. I know it's going to help a lot of people. So let's talk just a little bit about that thing that happened Tuesday. That debate thing up there in Cleveland, a case Western. Yeah. And uh, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of sunrises. I've seen a lot of sunsets. I've served in the military for over 20 years, but I've never seen anything like that before. Let's talk about that a little bit in terms of what, what is your perspective of why did it happen that way? Yeah, let me just turn on the light a little bit because sure. it went down. Sure, no problem, no problem. So uh, I'm here with uh, Dr. Askia Davis, and uh, he's a was a professor and um, he did just a lot of work in New York City. And uh, he later became superintendent of schools in Harlem for over 100,000 students in Bronx section of New York City. Uh, he has a doctor of education, a graduate at Columbia University at the age of 32 while writing his dissertation of the year for his department. And uh, he's doing some great work. And today we're talking about an issue that of course is important to all of us. And what's important to all of us is this election coming up, but we're just going back just a few days for that debate in Ohio, of which I lived there four years in the state of Ohio at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, but up at Case Western up there near Cleveland. So I'm trying to uh, have this dialogue with Brother Davis about that thing that happened that was supposed to be a debate. What is your perspective on that and, and how it went down like it did? Well, you have to understand who was in the room. So they had Giuliani coaching him. They had um, Chris Christie coaching him. Chris Coach, yes. Mm -hmm. I'm quite sure. I don't know if Barr was in the room, but he Barr is been. one of the most dangerous people in America. But people <laughs> are talking about removing Trump from office. You know, that also removes Barr. Barr, who, right. Who cleared that scene in Washington, you know, yes, had, helicopters, had helicopters over the people. The National people Guard. terrorizing people, yeah. flash banging, you know, doing everything just so the man could go across the street and hold the Bible, Bible up, up. down. He didn't even know how to hold the Bible upright. So, yes. so they're in the room and they decided that the Democrats are not going to call them out for being authoritarian. They're going to come up with all kinds of, you know, nice sounding words, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, 
he's he's not following uh norms right yeah <laughs> yeah know, this this is out and out neo-fascism you know yes. let me, let me it, it, it's, a, it's a heated word but let me explain what i mean by that what this says what they what this means is that you cannot protest remember Barr wanted to actually arrest, arrest people the mayor he wanted to have the arrest the mayor yes because because the mayor did not clamp down in his words on the protest you see what i'm saying so right. here's here's somebody this is the kind of stuff that you expect and some you know in russia <laughs> you know right. or, right. or something like that and so you got this you got all in china Right. right. Yeah. That's what, that's, that's what uh, they, the, the coronavirus shut down the Hong Kong protests. But what happened, the United States did not support them in their efforts for democracy. And uh, they, we can't now because we are challenged on that ourselves right now. Yes. So, so the people in the room told him, look, just be nasty. Just be forceful because yeah. because that's your strength. You're White supremacist voters want to see you be so. Even even if you're nasty, they're gonna read it as strength. And guess what? A lot of them read it as strength. They right? read it as strength exactly. You were strong. You but, were strong. But, but the interesting thing, the interesting thing was, uh, Biden was really and, and and the moderator. He was trying to get them to talk about issues affecting the the electorate, the people. And the families and and the loss of, of, of COVID-19, the jobs are gone, the businesses won't open, uh, people are hurting right now. And he would he would never talk about issues involving people. Exactly. Trump would never talk about is the issues. If you have a platform and you support the people, you know what you're gonna talk about. Okay, so let's talk about health care. Okay, so people have been waiting three and a half years, almost four years for a plan that's opted of the Affordable Care Act, the ACA. Well, there is no plan. So if you, you knock 26 million people off the rolls, uh, then they have nothing. Or they're gonna pay something that's double uh, that, especially with pre-existing conditions. So I, I'm not sure uh, in four years, why can't you come up with a healthcare plan? I don't, I don't understand that. And so the thing, the thing, that's not important to him. That's why he can't. Correct. What's important for him is to create a straw man, a boogeyman. And the boogeyman uh, in 2016 were Mexicans, Mexicans coming across the border, right? And so right. he put kids in cages. Right, this that's year, not good, that's not this good. Year, it's this year, it's, it's, pro, it's protest, you know? They're going to invade the suburbs. They're going to do uh they, you know, so they're, they're gonna they're gonna invade the place where they live they're gonna invade and they're gonna put your white women in danger they're not gonna do that so this is this is this is this is this is prototypical fascism you, yeah. you find a scapegoat and so yeah. it's not even about policies he's not well I, I saw a documentary on hitler and mussolini and that's yeah. exactly what they were talking about. Yeah. 
<laughs> Mussolini, Mussolini definitely talked about that. I saw a documentary on him. I went to Air War College, so we see all of that type of thing. And actually, in my entire 20 years of, of serving the military, we were fighting against that. You were, but look, but now, look, this man had, he had said negative things about military, veterans, veterans, dead veterans, losers and suckers. To some of them, it doesn't matter, including certain veterans, because the bottom line is not that. The bottom line is that this has to be maintained as a white male dominant country. And that's just the bottom line. And that's the same thing that Hitler was about. Hitler, yeah. Mussolini, they were, they, were, they were not about German women. They were not about Italian women. It's the same thing. These, these people in America, Trump is not about white women. He's about the white male, white male dominance. And, yeah. and the, well, people who vote, the people who voted for him, including some of them. That's who what they voted, were voting for. And, and, including some white women who voted. That way they voted because they believe that too. Yeah. You know, they value their, son, their sons above their daughters. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, when he was asked by, by Wallace, the, um, do you devour uh, white racists? And he's, he's, he got stumped. He didn't see that one coming. Yeah, he and he it. couldn't answer it. And I think my conclusion is you're not going to answer something that you are. You're not going to put down what you are. Yeah, no. That's 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 the what what I got from that, and I looked at. It, I said, surely he's going to say that he denounces this because of the division that it causes, and the division is always caused. And but he could not bring himself to say it because it's who he is. It's who he is. That's who he and, is. And so, but we're we're not surprised by that. And so, what we need to do is we need to we need to vote. Yes. We, need, we need to vote. This is a guy who is telling our militias to go and stand at the poll. You saw what happened in Virginia? Yeah, Which Fairfax, is yeah. This is what he wants. He wants to create chaos. He wants to suppress us, suppress us forever. And he has a few black people who are helping him. Yeah. I saw, the, I saw uh, Johnson, they, they uh, found a BET. Yeah, I saw that. I look, at, I look at the financial channels. I don't look at... Uh, CNN and MSNBC too much. I look at CNBC and Bloomberg right. because right. really, Brother Paul, it's all about money. Money. It's, it's money. about yeah. money and power. Yes. And you look and what did Robert Johnson say, black man? He says, now I'm not speaking as a black man. I'm, speaking, said, I'm speaking as a businessman. Business yeah. And as a businessman, you want the devil that you know. That you know. No. And so I know what I'm getting from Trump. He said, but I don't know what I'm getting from this, this other guy. Yeah, I, I read that. He didn't even say his name. Yeah. <laughs> you see yeah, what I saw saying? that. And, and so what I'm saying to you is it's about money. It's about the stock market. What, does he, what was he saying this week? Oh, the stock market is doing very, very well. Even though all, you still got 26 million people on the unemployment. Yeah. The stock market. You know, yeah. and, you and we haven't, and we haven't even talked about. I think now what two hundred and ten thousand people dead from COVID nineteen and counting. And if you you take the healthcare away, then that's a pre existing condition. If he gets reelected, which means that a lot of people, a lot more people, are gonna die. A lot more people, and I would tell you, he expressed more empathy 
for hope hits. Right. But when she got it, therefore, those two, he has not said anything about 200,000 people. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a, and so I look at a few blacks who say, oh, this COVID is no big thing, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking and I'm saying, man, you let the people like me who have had family members who have died. Yes. I mean, when, when you add up, when we go to war, I put on that Air Force uniform or my brother put on that Army uniform. And when we look at the wars that have taken place yeah. in our generation, not even when we add up the Vietnam War or the Korean War does it total the number of deaths from this pandemic because there was not enough effort put into trying to contain it. And uh, unfortunately, uh, there are going to be a lot more happening to a lot more people. That's why it was important for them not to send those kids back to school. Exactly. So, so Brother Paul, imagine if white people were dying at two times the rate of black people with COVID. That would have been a different response. You it see what I'm saying? Different. Yeah. That would have been a very, very different response. So now they send people, kids back to school, you saw FSU the other night, they broke up a party of a thousand kids. Exactly. The week before at that same university, 1,500 kids tested positive for COVID. Yes, so, because they're in the crowds, they're having parties and everything yeah. else. So young people are gonna do, you know, from having kids, and I know from having kids and from being educators, that their brains don't fully mature in judgment until they're 27, 28 years old. Exactly, yes. They go to party. I don't blame them. But I right. also, but I do say to the universities, why are you bringing them back? When you know this is going to be the reality. They can do online. Online works. No, no one ever caught it from being online, right? <laughs> and, now, and now look, look at the rates of what's going on in Florida. What's, what's going on in Wisconsin? What's, Texas. Yes. Florida, Florida. Has, Florida has not had more cases, 300,000 more cases than New York. Yeah. The and is, the difference is it's in a younger population. And so you don't have as many deaths, but the winter is coming. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So uh, we're getting close to the end of our interview, which has been very enlightening. And I know people are going to take a lot from uh, what we discussed today and, and you providing that expertise. So what is there, um, what else would you like to say before we depart uh, for the listeners and subscribers? If you could provide uh, some advice, some wisdom, that you can uh, leave them with going forward. Okay, um, so you were breaking up a little bit, but I think you- uh, Right, this technology, yes. Yeah, so, so repeat it again. Yes, uh, what advice would you like to provide to people who are listening going forward in terms of some wisdom or some advice that you can recommend to people uh, here in, in America? All right, so uh, my advice is exercise your vote. Understand that our people have suffered and that so many of us, so many of our people have died, our ancestors have died to get that vote. Yes. And not just vote when it's presidential and Congress and Senate, but mayors, district attorneys, and a lot of cities and towns as sheriffs you know, you have to, you sure. have to exercise your, your right to vote. That is so important. Mm -hmm. If 
financial literacy. Financial literacy. Yourself, you know. Yes. No, don't don't rely upon. There are so we know we read all the stories of all the rich black entertainers and sports sure, athletes who went broke because they entrusted somebody else with their with money knowledge about their money and about their investments. No, so the third, thing is, the third <laughs> thing is we have to support our people in business. Yes, you know, I I have rental property in here in Brooklyn. My plumbing is black. My electricians are black. You know, my my painters, my handyman, and guess what? I get high quality service. I don't believe in a stereotype that you yes. can't get high quality service from black business people. You see? Exactly. My barber, I'm not going because of the COVID thing. I haven't been back to my barber since March. But guess what? Every three months I go over and give him a hundred dollars so that he did what I would have been paying if I had been getting my hair cut so that he could yeah, stay in business. Exactly. So he could stay in business. Because that keeps the community strong. It strengthens the community. community strong. So yes. we have to learn how to circulate the money in our communities. The other thing is we are in churches. Encourages, encourage our churches to be about more than just the middle-class members in the church. Right, so exactly. Oh, you know, it's not that many <laughs> poor people in a lot of these elite churches in Washington, D.C., and New York. And so they don't, they don't focus on those issues of the poor. And I grew up in Georgia, and I was dirt poor, and mm -hmm. I went to church, St. James Baptist Church, and you couldn't tell the poor from the middle class Exactly. Oh, one. We sat together, we lived together, we worked together, we strived together. United. That's what we need to do. We have to have a sense. And we need to know that we are one people. You know, there are more black people in Brazil than there are in the United States of America. Exactly. And they're yes. catching hell down. Like Malcolm X says, they catch a hell down in Brazil, just like you catch a hell in Alabama. Exactly. So we need to we need to understand the glo bigger global picture. The other thing is education. Education. Yes. That's the key. Education. Third, last thing, entrepreneurism. I was in Nigeria a year and a half ago. I I did a a, a presentation on entrepreneurism. I had a hundred and fifty young Nigerians in their twenties. Brother Paul. They came up and talked about the businesses that they had created with what would be the equivalent of $300 in America. And I was just shocked. And their businesses are striving and they're growing and they're hiring people. But they started out with $300 and ideas. I would say Nigerians are, in terms of, and I've been all over the world like you, uh -huh. I've never seen a more enterprising group of people than you see. Uh -huh. With Nigerians. See, I, I know from personal experience because I have relatives that lived there 35 years. In fact, uh, one of my cousins, her husband used to head up the highway department in the country of Nigeria. Yeah. And so, he was a, a graduate at um, Purdue University. And let me tell you what his invention was with his classmates. You know, the entry and exit ramps on the highway, the clover leaves? Yeah. That's what they came up with. See that? And, he, and he was he was one of them. He was from Nigeria. He was part of the Igbo tribe. There's a there's a there's a. Uh, Can I get you to repeat that?
today. Yes. Can, I, can I get you to repeat that? Three years ago, he invented, there's a young man in Zimbabwe, three years ago, he invented a sensor to detect using the neurons of mice, of mice to detect explosives on an airplane. Nigerian, yes. but they're all over the world. Yes. You go to Dubai, you know that 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 that, that the, one that looks like the boat. Oh, Khalifa, yes. Boat? yes. You walk in there, and guess who's running that? When I was there, a Nigerian. They're all over the world. All over. And guess what? There's a lot of Nigerian in us. Yes. Absolutely. In fact, you know, there's a we're we're we I look at people and they say, well, you know, I'm I'm this and I'm that, African Americans. Most of us yes. are, 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 are amalgamation of a yes. lot of different nations in Africa. Absolutely. And it's not DNA, it's Nigeria, it's Cameroon, Rome, it's Angola, yes. it's Nam Namibia, it's Mali, I mean Senegal. Everything on that West Coast. You see what West I'm saying? Africa. Because so, that's where the slave ships came from. So we have to we have to see this great unity. And finally, history. I tell yes. every young person, this book here, uh, African Origin of Civilizations, uh -huh. Myth of Reality, Shape anti yes. This is This is a classic. This is, if you want to know who we are, uh -huh. you know, if you want to know who the ancient Egyptians were, and they were not Egyptians, they were from Kemet, yes. Egyptian, Egypt, Egyptos is a Greek word. Yes, That's what the Greeks called them when the Greeks came, but the Greeks came two, three thousand years later, later. than the Egyptians in the oldest pyramids. Yes, which yes, was I have, yeah, so I have a friend, a friend named George Frazier. He does the power networking. Yeah. And George, um, he grew up in New York, but he lives in Cleveland. And each year he takes a group of people to um, Egypt and they do a dig. They, they go over like, uh, uh, you know, to find the artifacts and everything. He goes every year, he takes a group of people, he asks me, hey, do you wanna go? They go for about, I think three weeks to a month. And, and it, what you just said is exactly what he said. I went to the Brooklyn Museum. The Brooklyn Museum here of Art has the largest Egyptian collection outside of Egypt. Mm -hmm. And two years ago, they finally did an exhibit and they put the put the word out. They say Egypt art is African art, created uh -huh. by African people. And right. that you have, you have to understand when you go back. And so uh -huh. guess what? They have the wig of of our Nefertiti right. at the Brooklyn Museum. And guess what it is? Dreadlocks. Dreadlocks, exactly. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Oh yeah. All right. Well brother um and Dr. Askia Davis, this was very enlightening, very powerful. And um, I, I'd love to have you on a future show. Yes. And uh, I know that the listeners are going to really uh, enjoy this because I know what you're talking about is truth. So whoever listens, don't let the truth hurt you. Just take it in, embrace it, learn something new, pick up that wisdom uh, that was shared by Dr. Askia Davis, our honored guest today. Uh, we're going to depart now. Again, he's a social entrepreneur dedicated to propelling Nigeria's social development enterprises and institutions to global leadership and enhancing a culture of volunteerism and philanthropy. 
And if you want to uh, learn more about him, uh, you can do so. And if you could provide your uh, email address for us, Dr. Tom, D Dr. Davis. Okay, it's askia, A-S-K-I-A dot Davis, D-A-V-I-S at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook as Askia Davis Sr. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Again, we had a, just a great time today. The focus, again, just for you all, so you can understand, the focus is on looking at what is taking place today uh, on um, racism, on discrimination, inequality, suppression of the vote, uh, different things that are happening in America today. And we wanted to have a, a greater and broader discussion on it. And um, Dr. Davis, of course, provided us with that today. We're going to come up on that next episode shortly in probably a couple of days. But today, uh, we want to I want to thank Dr. Askia Davis for his contributions to the Wealth Academy podcast uh, community. And of course, you notice that he talked a lot about wealth building, uh, legacy wealth, understanding through financial literacy. And, and even more. So take all of this into account and apply it. And last but not least, he talked about the importance of the vote, November the 3rd, a month from today. And don't only look at the presidency, but also look at the governors, members of Congress, board of elections, sheriffs in, in the South, uh, judges, and, and, and looking at the school boards, look at everything, Go down that ballot list and know those issues. That's what he's telling us. Know those issues because those issues will make a difference in, in each and every one of our lives. So again, my name is Paul Lawrence Van, host of Wealth Apotomy Podcast. And I want to say to each and every one of you, as always, my time is up and I thank you for yours. I'll see you on the next broadcast. You can listen to this episode at www.wealthacademypodcast.com. Thank you all. And thank I'll you see for you listening. On the next you will find the show notes for links to everything that was mentioned. You will find the show notes on my landing page. Subscribe to the Wealth Academy podcast. Rate or review the podcast on iTunes. 